1: What is up, Nets fans? Welcome to the Brooklyn Buzz. With me, Justin Thomas of Nets Republic. Justin, we are talking about a Nets loss to the Sixers in game one, 121, 101. How are we feeling?
2: Uh a little disappointed. Not at the at the loss. I mean, obviously we know coming into this game, the Nets are the underdogs. Um, I think the spread on the game was like eight and a half, ten and a half, something yep. like that. Um, but just a little bit disappointed because I thought they'd be it'd be a competitive 48 minutes, and I think all we got was a competitive maybe 37.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, it was disappointing, like you said, because it was really the performance we were looking at. We weren't necessarily looking at the win or the loss. Given, like you said, it's an underdog scenario. The Nets are a new team. They, you know, haven't really gelled to the highest extent yet, and probably haven't really played four great quarters as a team. You know, in the second half of the season, but. It felt like there was a chance to at least keep it close in the fourth quarter and then maybe, you know, get lucky with a few breaks and have a chance to win at the end, similar to what happened in that February matchup with Philly. But the Nets just kind of fell apart starting late in that third, had a little surge in the fourth, but ultimately got blown out by the Sixers. And before we jump into it, quick reminder, you can find the buzz on all streaming platforms. Also, give us a follow on Instagram at Brooklyn Buzz Pod. But I guess, Justin, what was the biggest issue for you in this game for the Brooklyn Nets?
2: Uh, and the biggest issue is definitely the hustle plays. Uh, you know, when you come into a game as the underdog, the opportunities that you have are few and far between. And where you really build, you know, close the gap is in those 50-50 balls, the loose balls, the offensive glass, things like that. And frankly, the Nets were just out-hustled mainly by PJ Tucker. And I know that's pretty much what his job has been in the past two or three years uh, in the league. You know, we see him do it. We've we've seen him do it with. Uh, you know, the, the Bucks. we've seen him do it with many other teams before. He's he's a championship-caliber type of player. This is the job he does, and he did a fantastic job of it, just getting to seemingly every loose ball. And it turned, you know, the Nets would have a really good defense possession. They couldn't box out. Ball's on the floor. P.J. Tucker gets it, and wow, look at that, a corner melt in three or a corner James Harden in three. Um, so I think that was probably the biggest takeaway for me, just the Nets not winning uh, in the hustle category, which is ultimately what led to the loss. Yeah. You and I were chatting
1: before we hopped on and it was like PJ Tucker had more hustle plays himself than the entire Nets team. You know, that is his job, but also the Nets are constructed of you know, 90% role players at this point, you'd expect guys to play harder, especially with an opportunity to steal one in Philly for what seemed like the first three quarters. And, you know, you look at stats, the Sixers had 14 offensive rebounds, the Nets had five, you know, Sixers had 19 more shooting possessions. They finished with 89 field goal attempts, only 70 for the Nets. And like you talked about, it's, that's the difference right there because the Nets shot really well in this game. They shot 55% from the field and 44% from three. If you told me that going to Game one, I would think they had a really good opportunity to win. And that just wasn't the case because of those hustle plays. And also, Philly shooting a ridiculous number from three, 48%, 21 of 43. But that was also a result of the defense and Nets elected to play. And also, I thought some lackluster uh, closeouts and rotations, especially as the game progressed. You know, there was a mix of good rotations, good closeouts, good double teams, but it was a really hot and cold bag. You know, it was like, either a perfect defensive possession or a really poor one that led to a three-point shooter the Sixers wanted to, you know, get an open three, get that open three and knock it down from a spot they like to shoot from.
2: Yeah, I think from a defensive standpoint, for the majority of the game, outside of like that weird stretch where the Nets went zone for some reason. Yeah, uh, when Embiid with was on no the floor, Joel
1: Embiid on the floor. Yeah,
2: that,
1: that was that was a ridiculous stretch and not to say it dictated the game, but that playing zone and then playing Seth Curry, Joe Harris and Darren Sharp at the same time, just an extremely strange and bad basketball decision.
2: Yeah, it was definitely uh, not what you want. I thought the defensive game plan for the majority of the game was good, getting the ball out of... Or at least throwing the double at Joel Embiid, making him be a, a, a playmaker. And, you know, credit Joel Embiid. He did find the right guy more often than not. Uh, and as you said, it was really either hot or cold with the Nets. Either it was a perfect defensive possession or it was a wide-open three. Uh, there were times where you saw guys kind of confused as to where their next rotation was supposed to be yep. on those switches. Um, you know, and I think that's just... Maybe, I don't know how much they have practiced that over this week, but i assume they'd, they'd send that same uh, defensive scheme out for game two, and maybe it'll be a little bit crisper. Uh, you know, I thought Finney-Smith did a good job of fronting Embiid, Royce O'Neal did a good job of fronting Embiid, you know, be physical with him. Obviously, there was some chippiness in that second half as well. Wasn't too thrilled with the fact that it was, Royce and Embiid were hit with a double tech, even though uh, Embiid pushed him twice, but... You know, you saw a hard foul on Embiid from Finney Smith, and I think you know the Nets had a good defensive plan. You know, just tip your cap. You have to tip your cap too to the to the Sixers. You know, you you can't expect them to shoot an ungodly percentage from three like they did today. Melton shot great, Neang shot great, James Harden literally turned back the clock. I'm pretty sure he tied his career high in playoff threes today with six or seven. But you know, it's for the for the most part, I thought the Nets were solid. But you know, as as we alluded to you have to be almost perfect when you're the underdog team and you can't have defensive lapses like the nets had cuz you just dig yourself a hole you can't get out of yeah and i think like you said you know
1: 21 of 43 from 3 the nets you know only made 13 threes the sixers made 21 that's just a huge factor and them shooting that efficient level it's it's hard to see the nets really win this game just because they shot out of this world and like you mentioned james harden hit some really tough threes, especially at the end of that second quarter. There was one where he like bobbled the ball and it still went in. It's just like, like you said, you kind of tip your cap. It's more of the areas where the Nets can control, you know, as we alluded to with the hustle plays. And I think offensively, you know, the turnovers really hurt them in this game. 19 turnovers, you know, from pretty much everyone who played in this one, just – Everyone looked a little uncomfortable at times. And then there was different points where guys were probably trying to do too much. You know, Joe Harris tried to make a play in the pick and roll. Dorian Finney Smith tried to make a play on a drive like you just kind of have to understand your role and know who you're going against. And I thought the Sixers at the same time did a pretty good job of baiting the nets on a couple of those plays.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to really kill Joe for him just trying to make a play. At that point, the Nets' offense was a little bit stagnant. Uh it's they were just having a difficulty finding offense, especially in the in that fourth quarter. And you know it, I don't know if it's credit to the Sixers' defensive scheme on Mikhail in the second half or just the Nets got to do a better job of finding him uh shots, but the fact that at one point Joe Harris had more shot attempts in the second half than Mikhail Bridges is is definitely alarming. Um it's it is it's just for how well the Nets played and how free flowing it kind of looked in the first half, everything kind of just bogged down in the second. Um, And you know what? Maybe it's a case of looking at different guys in the rotation. Maybe, you know, I don't want to feel like a a, a broken record here, but you know, the Seth Joe minutes are scary at best. Um, Maybe you throw in somebody like a cam Thomas, just for like a five minute stretch, just to get some shots up, just to see if you can get something. Um, because what they displayed in that fourth quarter up until like they put you know made that little nine-o run, what they displayed was not winning basketball.
1: Yeah. And I agree. I think, you know, I think the rotation has to get probably I don't want to say tighter, but probably expanded for the starters. You know, you and I were talking about before we hopped on again. You know, Clacks played thirty minutes. I think that's a fair number. Maybe you could uptick him a little bit in the right situation. Um Mikhail Bridges, thirty-four. I think he's at a point in his career and an age where he should be playing a minimum of 40 minutes in a playoff game and obviously Vaughn waved the white flag like about with four minutes left in the fourth quarter then when he played about 37 we're going to talk about him in a little bit Royce O'Neal 28 Cam Johnson 28 thought he could have played more because he was shooting really well hitting a lot of contested shots and then Dorian Finney-Smith weirdly enough played 17 minutes and 38 seconds and I didn't think DFS was bad in this game. I thought he was able to have an impact offensively and defensively. And really, you know, the fact he knocked down his first two threes, I would have played him bigger minutes until he went cold.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Like like I said, like he's somebody that has playoff experience. He was on those Dallas Mavericks teams that made deep runs in the West. Uh, We know about, you know, playoff dough. I was also surprised. I mean, I was, you know, I was watching the game with my brother and I'm thinking in the fourth quarter, like, wow, I haven't seen Dorian Finney Smith in a while, you know, outside of the, uh, you know, the, the hard foul on the Embiid dunk attempt, that was kind of like the only thing I really remember of, of, of Dorian Finney Smith doing in that second half. Yeah. He did have that kind of like kind of brain dead moment in the first half on that drive. But other than that, like you said, he made his two threes. Uh, he's definitely somebody that did, did, did his job on the defensive end. Um, he's going to have his hands full when they switch off, uh, you know, clacks off of Embiid. Uh, but I thought he did a good job there. Yeah. I, 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 it, that's probably one of the more shocking things that, that Finney Smith didn't even get to 20 minutes in a, in a playoff game where you definitely need defense to help you out.
1: Yeah. And the fact that we complained about hustle plays and, you know, you could argue out of all the net starters, he's the guy that's going to make those hustle plays. He's going to go out there and grind, give you that extra level of physicality. And it was just weird. I think also I didn't love the idea of DFS on James Harden, you know, if you want to start that way, kind of grind him down a little bit, but I thought it would probably make more sense. Jack and I discussed this on the preview, of putting him on PJ Tucker and now allow DFS to really be that help guy, be that guy that can roam and then, you know, help clacks on Joel Embiid or whoever gets switches where you can do those scram switches. Now at least DFS is providing you some level of physicality and he can at least slightly impact Embiid or other Sixers at the rim where a lot of the other nets aren't necessarily doing that. So just a weird game in terms of his minute count and also his usage.
2: You yeah, know, I, I definitely agree with the fact of, starting him on pj because look yeah pj made his two threes today he did make two i don't know how many more shot attempts he had but you know if pj got two five gonna, so two you live of, with yeah, that you 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 live with that pj i mean you know not to not to bring the betting side into it but his over under in points is three and a half which means that you know vegas doesn't even think he's going to make more than one shot in a game so having uh dorian finney smith in that help role you know, definitely is more advantageous for the Nets than having Doe, you know, on Harden. Yes, it might tire Harden out more to work, you know, work harder in that first half, but I'd rather have Doe as the help guy off of Tucker because I will give P- 2023 P.J. Tucker that corner three 9.9 times out of 10 because majority of times he's not going to make it. He hasn't made it most of the time this season. Um, So, yeah, hopefully in game two you see a much better You see Finney Smith on the floor a lot more.
1: Yeah, and I think also just I would have liked to see more variation in the game plan defensively, just like more, you know, different schemes. You know, obviously we talked about zone. I didn't think that was a good choice, particularly at that point in time. But if you want to throw zone when Embiid's out there and actually play it properly, you know, that might work out. But not necessarily the lineup they played it against. Maybe Vaughn saving, you know, some of his his, uh, adjustments for game two, game three, game four. But it just felt like you had a good idea what the Nets were trying to do. And by the time it felt like the third quarter came around, the Sixers were just more prepared for that. And obviously the more talented team, and they were able to capitalize on a lot of those things. But I guess getting into the players, you know, actually before we get into the players, do you have any positive takeaways from today? Something that we can kind of build on moving forward? Maybe not just like a specific player performance, but uh, a style or a thing the Nets did today that worked out pretty well.
2: Um, I mean, like I said, I thought they played a pretty good, first 35 36 minutes of the game i thought the defensive strategy was good you know when they weren't getting mixed up on their switches uh Joel beat only finished i believe at 26 points so that's a, that's a positive you know uh you know as as long as he's not they, they didn't let him beat them which is which, which is cool uh yeah I, I i liked i mean i know we're gonna get into him more but i mean mikhail bridges is definitely a star at this point um you know i i but other than that I just didn't like the hustle, the uh, the approach of the game. But you know what? Maybe they come out with a better, more concerted effort on in game two.
1: Yeah, I think one thing I like that they did defensively in this game was they did a nice job on a couple possessions of really making the Sixers waste the shot clock, especially James Harden, who we know can dribble out the basketball a little bit too much, can be a little lackadaisical bringing it up, especially when he's pressed full court. They did a nice job of kind of getting the Sixers into their sets I like the t- 10 to 12 second mark of the shot clock, and at that point in time, you know you don't have to rotate it as much, you don't have to do as much defensively. You know it's just kind of like, all right, now they're going to end up with a shot, or whoever gets the ball after two or three passes has to take that shot. So that was, I think, a positive and something they can look to do moving forward. And I think at other times it was too comfortable for the Sixers in terms of getting into their sets. So there was a big difference when they were able to slow them down from getting in their sets to other times were they able to kind of just work their way into it. And some of that comes from turnovers because obviously off a turnover, the Sixers are going to get transition opportunities. It felt like every time the Nets had a turnover, the Sixers were able to push the pace and generate a really good look, which is typically the case for good teams. But like you said, Mikel Bridges, awesome in this game, especially in the first half. Um, I think Cam Johnson had some positive takeaways. And I think offensively, they were probably able to generate enough good shots. You know, they, as I mentioned, they shot over 50% from the field. They shot over 44% from three. It was more so the turnovers and the stagnant possessions that prevented them from keeping up with the Sixers offensively, even with them, the Sixers shooting a crazy number from three.
2: Yeah, and that's the fear. I think we had coming into this playoffs is, you know, how good will the Nets' offensive firepower be? You know, like, all right, we know that they can compete on the defensive end. Obviously this game, you know, we throw it out the window now because of what we saw, but you know, the, the fear is that all right, if, if your team goes down by 10, 12 points, do you have enough offense to stay in the game? And for the most part, they did. Um, I did like some of the two man action that I saw with the twins in that first yep. half. I know one of them, uh, it was a lot of screening. Mikhail came around to pick, Um, And then Cam Johnson relocated back to the corner. He found him for a corner three. Um, I loved Mikhail and his transition threes were were really good today. But... You know, I think the Nets did a lot of good things offensively, especially with their movement. But like you said, the the stagnation, it's when you get into the half court and you have Spencer dribbling the ball and you're not getting into your offense until about the 11 or 12 second mark. And then you're kind of rushing everything. We saw a few uh, shot clock violations. I think there was one in the yes. first half with uh, Seth Curry where he got the ball with five seconds left and was just dribbling the ball out, didn't even know it. And then he turned around, and put up a shot, but the shot clock went off. So these are the things that you got to clean up. Um, you know, and you know what? Take what's the, take what the Sixers are giving you. I thought this uh the Sixers didn't play a tremendously overwhelming defensive game. They definitely gave the Nets opportunities and Nets just didn't capitalize. I think one of the big things is, you know, trying to find clax. Um I know Spencer tried his absolute <laughs> hardest on his lobs, which for the love of God, please stop throwing lobs because I'm pretty sure he was like one of eight yeah. on those lob attempts between clax and day run. <laughs> cost the Nets a
1: lot. And that also is a huge factor in uh, allowing the Sixers to play a defensive coverage they want to play. You know, mm-hmm. Embiid's dropping and he's playing in that in-between, but Spencer can't make him pay with a lob for, to clacks. Now they just feel really comfortable, especially if Dan Woody's not knocking down his jumpers. And he did not have a great game, you know, shot five of 12 from the field, one of five from three. And as you ele- alluded to, like those missed lobs, they just hurt because they should be easy money. And I mean, you could argue it was anywhere from eight to twelve points in this game, and not to say the Nets would have won the game, but maybe it's a a different ball game going to the fourth quarter. Or there's different opportunities for guys to step up, and you know they just need Spencer to be better. You know, the Nets ask him to do a lot. He's not necessarily an All-Star level player, and they're probably asking him to be beyond an All-Star level role. But he still has to just perform at a higher level than he performed today. Especially the way he played in that first half was bad.
2: Yeah, uh, it's. You know, if, if the Sixers are going to be playing drop, we know Mikhail can shoot the mid-range. Uh, and he know. ate. And, and he ate in the mid-range. Uh, Seth Curry is another guy that that eats in the mid-range when he wants to. Um, this is what I'm saying. Like, you have to take what the Sixers are giving you. So You know, sometimes the threes aren't going to be there, especially Spence. I saw him force a lot of threes today. Uh, there was the one stretch in that fourth quarter, like, right after the Nets made that 9-0 run. The Sixers called timeout, right? You're like, all right, the lead is cut down to 11. There's about seven minutes left. All right, there, there may be a shot. You see a forced uh, three-point shot from Spence and then a, and a miss lob. I believe it's basically the equivalent of like a five-point swing. Sixers so go back up 18, and then Jock Vaughn's throwing the white flag. And these are things you can't afford from your starting point guard. You know, four turnovers. He was a minus 13. I mean, I know plus minus isn't all that, you know, meets the eye, but – the Nets need Spencer Dinway to be that calming presence For the Bridges is going to be the guy tasked with scoring. Spencer has to be the guy that calms the offense, makes the plays, does this, that, and the third. And today he just didn't do that.
1: Yeah. I mean, they probably won't win a, a playoff game. If Spencer plays at this level. And like you alluded to earlier, it limits Nick Claxton, you know, Claxton's not a guy that's going to do a lot in isolation. He's not a guy that's going to create for himself. He needs to be set up in those pick and roll opportunities. And, it just felt like he rarely had many opportunities other than the bad lobs to make a play today offensively.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that and that's what goes into the whole if, if Joel's playing drop, right? You know what, Spence, instead of the the lob, just throw up a little floater. Maybe yeah. one or two floaters, keep them off balance then and is gonna have to respect that at some point. And then that opens up the lob for clacks. For if not a lob, maybe just a little drop down bounce pass you know, maybe yeah. a wraparound, some, something, but you got to get, you got to find a way to get your big man um, some, some clean, easy looks. I mean, it wasn't his best performance today, Clax. I mean, but it's tough going up against a, an MVP caliber player in Joel Embiid. But for the most part, I thought it, I was just a little bit surprised that Clax was just so quiet on the offensive end outside of those, you know, errant lob passes.
1: Yeah. And I think uh, also with Spencer, it's like he was almost intimidated by Embiid. You know, he, he essentially like refused to take shots in front of his face or even really drive on the rim on him many times. And I get it. He's, he's a great player, but at the same time, you know, you have to get to the rim and try to get some free throw attempts through there. And I felt like there was points in this game where he was just fading in the mid range or in the, you know, even the short range where he could have been initiating contacts on guards and trying to get to the rim. And yeah, you're not going to get every call, but he did get a couple, especially like, I want to say one in the third quarter against Tyrese Maxey, like, there's really no reason you're just a bigger guard go at his chest and try to get those free throws and like you said that could always lead to some more opportunities for clacks because now Embiid's coming to help a little bit harder that bounce pass or that wraparound pass is going to be there for clacks to get some easy dunks or layups.
2: Yeah, I mean, we talk about it all the time, downhill Dinwiddie, and we saw it at points in this game that, look, no disrespect to anybody on the Sixers, but I don't think outside of Tyrese Maxey there's a guard or just any player on the Sixers that can stay in front of Spence when he puts his head down and drives to the basket. And we saw that in that first half where Spence was going to the basket. He got, I think, two straight possessions where he got a layup. Uh, or he got the foul. You know, he's got to make all his free throws. You know, I know he, he shot three or five, but still, every free throw matters. But yep. these are the things, you know, you talk about Spencer Jimmy just getting a paint touch opens up the defense so much, because now everybody's going to have to collapse, because obviously, you know, you got to stop the ball, right? That opens up a corner three for Joe Harris, opens up a corner three for Cam Johnson, or if you're not shooting that corner three, pass to the corner, pump fake, drive in, maybe it's a kick out for a wing three for Mikael Bridges or Royce or Dorian Finney-Smith. So, like, Yes, we 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 ask a lot of Spencer Dembe, but that's the role of a point guard, right? And I and I think we as Net fans we became accustomed to really good point guard play, right? From Jason Kidd to Devin Harris, and you know before you know it all went downhill. Deron Williams, right? Yep. But at this point, especially in the playoffs, Spence is so vital for what happens with the Nets' offense. Yes, Mikhail is the engine that drives it. He is everything, right? But Spence needs to be that number two, not in terms of scoring, but just in terms of making it easier, not only for Mikhail but for his other teammates.
1: Yeah, he just needs to lead the offense, initiate the offense, and you know shoot at a, a relatively efficient level and just take the right shots and make the right decisions. And like you said, it's a lot to ask, but at the same time, you know he knew that going to the series and obviously the Nets put a lot of pressure on him to do that.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate
3: you won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as J.J. does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. But moving over to Mikel Bridges,
1: who did finish this game with 30 points, 12 of 18 from the field, 2 of 4 from 3, 4 of 4 from the free throw line, 5 rebounds, 1 assist, 1 block, 3 turnovers. Mikel was awesome in that first half. I think, what did he finish with? 26 in the first half or 24? You know, uh, yeah, just there's
2: a, something around there. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it felt, as you mentioned earlier, was not able to get the shot attempts in the second half. Some of that's on the net. Some of that's on Philly for adjusting their defense, sending more double teams and traps. But at the same time, that's where you look at the coach, you look at the point guard and you say, we have to find a way to get Mikel Bridges the ball in a situation where he can score. And I think too many times the Nets offensively don't attack the weak link on the opposing team. You know, there's a possession in this game where James Harden goes down. He's like, you know, wobbling around for a couple possessions. The Nets didn't even look to attack him. Like you have to attack the weak link. And sometimes the Nets just don't do enough to make that happen. You know, give Mikel Bridges a lot of one-on-ones with James Harden or
2: whoever's, you know, one of the worst defenders on the floor. And the Nets just don't do it. We've seen this way too many times with the Nets down this stretch, down the second half of this season, where Mikhail will have a great first half, you know, and then all of us or he'll have a great third quarter, and all of a sudden, it's almost like he gets frozen out of the offense. Um, like too many times, where it's like, all right, man, this is this is a game. Mikael is probably going to go for forty, and because he has like twenty five at halftime, and he only ends with like thirty two, and you're like, well, what the heck happened? Um, yeah, the Nets definitely have to do a better job of getting Mikhail his touches. Um, I. Want to say he had two, two or three field goal attempts in that second half combined. I, I gotta go back and check, but it definitely wasn't a lot because him finishing only twelve of eighteen with thirty points when he had twenty in the first half or twenty plus in the first half is absolutely ridiculous. Like you said, yes, they definitely have to attack the weak links more on offense, um, because again, like Mikhail has gotten to the point with his with his offensive bag that you know what you're gonna kind of need an an, an all NBA caliber defender to stop him at this point. You know, Tyrese yeah. Maxey definitely is is a guy that can be can be thrown at him, but James Hall is not going to stay in front of him, right? You know, De'Anthony is no, not going to stay Maxie's in front of him. I don't even think Maxey's
1: good enough to stop him. I think the only really yeah. two good options for Philly would be uh, Jalen McDaniels and then De'Anthony Melton, and even those guys aren't, like, locked down. You know, McDaniels has had some really good stretches, but Mikel has shown the ability to hit tough shots, and he hit a lot of tough shots in that first half, including some beautiful and ones.
2: Yeah, he I, like you just said, he showed he can get to wherever he wanted to on the floor. He was scoring at all three levels, at the basket, in the mid-range, at the three-point line. Like There was nothing he couldn't do in that first half, which is why it's so infuriating as to why it didn't translate to the second half. And like you said... Kept- Maybe it's it's what Doc did and 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 how they they defended him. Maybe it's on Vaughn for not getting him enough touches. Uh may you know what? Sometimes maybe it's on Mikhail. Maybe Mikhail just yeah. has to that's the next step in his his growth process of being like, all right, I'm the guy. Hey guys, give me the ball when we come down the floor. I'm gonna take over. You know, and I I get it. You know, sometimes it's hard for players who have played this role player role for the majority of their career in the NBA to take that next step. But this is what the Nets need from Mikael if he is to be the guy that leads them, not only just in this playoffs, but you know, for the franchise moving forward.
1: Yeah, hundred percent agree. And I think that's something I've talked about throughout the regular season. You know, he also can be a guy that calls for the ball or, Hey, like I'm taking this possession, give me the inbound pass and I'm doing what I need to do. And I think it'll also allow him to grow more because he's going to see double teams. They're going to you know, trap him. They're going to do whatever in the pick and roll. He has to obviously make the right pass, had a couple bad passes in this game. But that's another way to create advantages for the offense, generate good looks and opportunities for guidance to hit shots. So there are pluses from this game and how the Nets can build off of this. It just wasn't obviously enough
2: today. Yeah, it's 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 disappointing. It's not one of those losses where I'm almost, like, my whole day is ruined, um, you know, because, again, like, we kind of came into this series knowing, all right, then that's probably won't win it. Yeah, they could definitely pull off the upset. They definitely have the, a, a chance to do that. But it's not something where it's like, oh, like last year where it's like, all right, you have KD and Kyrie, and you're supposed to be getting to at least a conference final or something like that. But, you know, I think from what we saw in game one of this series, Mikhail Bridges is him um hopefully it keeps translating for the rest of the series uh but you know i, I i'd be remiss, i'd be remiss if i didn't give some shout out to dayron sharp because i thought dayron sharp played a pretty pretty good game all things considered
1: <laughs> yeah i think for the situation he's in and you know his experience in the nba the competition he's going against he played hard and i thought he made he was probably better in that first half than the second half and he saw probably more minutes than i anticipated you know some of those were garbage time in the last four minutes of the game, but also him playing over 10 minutes and them electing to go with him against Joel Embiid instead of going small with Dorian Finney-Smith, which not to say that I agree or disagree with the decision. It was just more so something I anticipated based off of Jacques, Jacques Vaughn's, you know, recent games and his recent choices.
2: Yeah, I um, I'm, I don't know what it is, but like, where do you see? Where, where, like, at least for the next for the next game, right? How do you see these, I guess, center rotation minutes going? Like, would you would you throw DeRon again out there with like maybe fifteen plus minutes? Um, you know, would or would you extend the Finney Smith minutes? Like, do you think those have like a uh? Are they do do they coincide with let more DeRon minutes versus less Finney Smith minutes? Or what, what what are you thinking on that uh, end?
1: I think uh, if Embiid's off the floor, I would try to get sneaking some small ball minutes. Like, Paul Reed is not necessarily scaring me where I don't think I can play Dorian Finney-Smith. Mm. I, don't re- I don't really mind playing sharp against Embiid for probably 10 to 12 minutes because I don't think Klax can last an entire game against him anyways. And then you let De'Ron go in there and just be annoying. I think that's one thing he did pretty well, just kind of you know picking Joel up at the three-point line, making him feel his body, and just kind of banging with him. I think... The one area that De'Ron just has to get better at, especially playing in the playoffs, is discipline. You know, he's just too antsy in terms of trying to block a shot. And, yes, he had that ridiculous block on James Harden. But there's other times where he's just jumping when the guy's beginning to get into his pump fake. And some of that's also his athletic limitation, so he needs to jump first. But sometimes you got to understand you're just also a giant human that can just put your arms up.
2: Yeah, I feel like we, every time we talk about DeRon, we're always like DeRon. You don't have to jump; just literally, just stand there. You're like
1: there was a play a in the fourth, fourth quarter where James Harden didn't even bring the ball above his chest, and DeRon Sharp was already in the air, and Paul Reed ended up getting a wide open dunk. It's just like those possessions, and I get it. He's a young guy; he hasn't played enough reps to really, you know, get this type of criticism. But we're in the playoffs, so I'm just gonna give everyone <laughs> what I what I
2: think. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like as— in terms of the Nets, I know there was a stat I saw. It was probably right before he Von waved the white right flag, but I saw it was the Sixers were leading twenty-one to one in second chance points, and that's just a number that I wasn't. I wasn't too shocked at the Sixers leading in that department, but I was the shocked. Number at just was the number was twenty-one to three. Twenty-one, yeah, 21 to 21. three. <laughs> like. I feel like it's just I, I saw it in that Buck series when the Nets had, you know, the big three, second chance points and just getting killed in that aspect. And, you know, is, is there a way the Nets can solve this? You know, obviously they are outmatched, I think, size and weight wise on the boards. And I know they're their their advantages are on the wings, but how do you counterbalance this whole just getting out rebounded and out muscled on the on the boards, which leads to second chance threes?
1: Yeah. I mean, you can't let PJ Tucker get five offensive rebounds. I don't care how hard the guy hustles. He's Mm. he's not necessarily a lanky guy. He's not an elite athlete. He's getting those rebounds because he's outworking somebody. He's getting good position. The one guy I could live with getting offensive rebounds is Joel Embiid. He is a monster of a human. He is hard for any single player in the NBA to deal with in terms of a box out. It's just all the other guys, you know. It's Tobias Harris getting two, James Harden getting one, De'Anthony Melton getting one, Tyrese Maxey getting one, Paul Reed getting two. You know, it's just across the board with all these guys getting what are really not even typically your your average offensive board. It felt like a lot of these offensive boards were hitting the ground once and taking a bounce. You know, they're grabbing them at the elbow or somewhere away from the rim, and they're the ones that you just can't accept. Like they're the ones that have to get cleaned up, and the Nets just have to be more locked in. And yes, that's putting bodies on all five guys or at least majority of them and pursuing the basketball. I would be happier if you see like I didn't see many plays today where a sixer and a net or meeting head on to go after a loose ball. You know, there was very rare occasions that we saw that today. And that just needs to happen more. You need to leave it on the court because it's the playoffs.
2: Yeah, no, definitely. I think one of the one of the plays that stands out to me in that regard is, no, there was definitely a P.J. Tucker one where the ball bounced like twice. P.J. Yep. ends up getting the ball. There's a corner three. Then there was one where the net in the second half, uh, I think it was Claxon tried to save it on the baseline, and he just threw it up towards, you know, n- near half court. It bounced once, and there was like no net in the area. And I'm like, oh, dang, the Sixers are going to have a breakout. But then there was Spencer Dinley right there at half court, and I thought for a second he was going to go attack the ball to try and get it, because if, if he gets that ball, the Nets have basically a three on one situation, maybe a four on one situation transpiring because Sixers had so many guys near half court. Instead, he kind of backs up, which allows the Sixers to get a three on one uh, transition opportunity. Um, so, yeah, like you said, like these like the loose balls, 50, 50 things like these are the areas that the Nets are going to have to improve upon if they want to have a shot of pulling the upset.
1: Yeah, everyone, too. It's not just one guy. It's everyone on the roster who's playing in this game. Just needs to work harder and just needs to put that extra level of effort and energy out there. And that's going to make a huge difference. But I guess getting to Cam Johnson, who shot really well in this game, you know, probably one of his better shooting games as a net, finished with 18 points, 7 11 from the field, four of six from three, had four rebounds, two assists, two turnovers. I thought Cam Johnson was pretty good and probably good enough for the net to get a win. If you told me this was the performance you'd get from him going to game one, I'd be happy with it
2: this is all you can ask for cam johnson right eight like you said 18 points he hit four threes in 27 minutes you know yeah you'd kind of like to see him up around the 30 minute uh i would you know, like mark. to see
1: him close to like almost 40 minutes because i think that mm-hmm. he's providing you more two-way impact than essentially all your bench guys who we'll talk about later who didn't really give us much
2: yeah i mean he's definitely somebody that can change the course of the game just from his three-point shooting um i think he had a few uh you know nice little uh floaters in this yep. game as well he did miss that one like kind of wide o- not wide open but little open floater which he also got fouled going got after fouled offensive rebound, <laughs> <game. laughs> and i'm like well and it led to i think a tyrese maxi uh yep. foul which i thought was bogus uh, i'm not even one of the going most the
1: frustrating finish, 30 seconds of this game i think
2: yes uh but cam johnson definitely played um played well uh yeah, it's, just, it's frustrating, right? You have a good game, you have a great game from the Twins, right? You get 30 from Bridges, you get 18 from Johnson. You're like, "All right, like the net should be in good shape." Really but, good
1: efficiency too.
2: Yeah, 7-11. Seven, ironic, right? 7-11 <laughs> <laughs> from Cam Johnson. But, you know, this and that's just have to build off of these guys, right? Like, you see Johnson's got the hot hand. Try and find him as much as possible. Keep running sets for him. Find him in the, you know, maybe in the weak side corner. You know, Mik- Mikhail is ki- cooking. Just keep feeding him the ball. But them not getting as many shot opportunities as they probably should have definitely killed the Nets uh, today.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, you you brought up a great point, you know, running some more sets for Cam Johnson, because if they're giving all this attention to Mikel, they're not going to be able to slow two guys down off ball. It's just incredibly difficult to do, especially if you're running actions on both sides of the court. So I think incorporating him more offensively, him probably being a little bit more aggressive, but I like the fact that he knocked down some contested threes. And I think his size gives him an opportunity to shoot over some of these Sixers defenders and also just like some of the slower, older guys they play in James Harden and P.J. Tucker.
2: Yeah, you and know, I think his athleticism too, he can use that to his advantage. Yep. If he's if he's making those three point shots, right? Let's say he makes his first two three point shots. All right, that opens the door for him to pump fake and drive past some of these defenders. Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna drive past a James Harden. He's gonna drive past a George Sniang, you know? And when he drives, all right, guess who's gonna be coming up? It's gonna be Joel Embiid to stop him. And oh look who's at in the dunker spot. It's Nick Claxton. You yep. know, so these are just the things that the Nets have to, you know, be mindful of. And I'm I'm sure they're gonna go over it in in, in film and things like that. And they're gonna see all the missed opportunities that they have. McHale is going to see missed opportunities where he could have attacked more. Cam Johnson is going to see opportunities where he could have attacked more. Uh, but I think from what we saw today with Cam Johnson, you love it. And if he's going to bring this type of performance night in and night out for this series, then Nets have a shot every night.
1: Yeah, and it's also going to help his payday substantially. You know, Jack <laughs> I and I mentioned on the preview, it could go from being in the $80 million range to now at the $100 million range. So it's some important stuff for Cam Johnson and love to see him play well. I guess touching on Claxon quickly, we already kind of mentioned offensively, not very involved, even not many you know, opportunities for him to fake the dribble handoff and get inside the paint. You know, I felt like the few opportunities he did have offensively to attack. He did do that. Knocked down two buckets. This one finished five points. Did have 10 rebounds, one assist, three blocks. You know, he's never going to be great against Joel Embiid one-on-one, given the the weight difference of 50 to 75 pounds. But in essentially every other aspect defensively, I thought Claxon was really good.
2: Yeah, I mean, you brought up the point about the fake uh, dribble handoffs, and I'd have to probably go back and rewatch the game, but is it just a case of the Sixers are they know that's coming? So they're just going to have Joel kind of slump back I, instead yeah, of I having think, uh, him press up on clutch when he gets that ball at the free throw line?
1: Yeah, I agree. I think uh, Joel is just kind of slumping off of him, just sagging back, especially because they're staying in that drop coverage. It's not like they're switching so they don't have to be aggressive in those scenarios. And that's an area where the Nets should look to attack. Not to say Joel won't adjust or the Sixers won't adjust, but if you can make him work more, that's a win because he already looked tired during different stretches of this game. And it's game one and Embiid has had an incredible workload all season long. So kind of just hitting him with some jabs in terms of the conditioning department might end up giving you a good fourth quarter and a bad fourth quarter from Joel Embiid.
2: And I think with, also, could be beneficial for Claxton and the Nets. Just trying to get out more in transition. Yep. Let Claxton use the advantage he has over Joel Embiid, which is his athleticism. He's much quicker than Embiid. He can he can fly up the court way faster than Embiid can. So if you can make Embiid have to run up and down the court, you know, like you said, it'll tire him out uh, for those fourth quarter stretches. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know what. They'll go to the drawing board. They'll see where they can find the advantage for Claxton. I mean, it's not like Claxton hasn't been able to put up numbers against Embiid, I believe. you yep. know, In one of the games down in Philly, he had like an 18 and like 14 game with like four, like four blocks. So we know he has the capability to to put up numbers against Embiid, um, you know, but this game wasn't the case. It, it could be different next game.
1: Yeah. He's not intimidated by Embiid like a lot of centers are. Like he's a guy that's willing to go at his chest and try to attempt the layup. Uh, I think uh, this reminded me of a, one of the post trade deadline games or like that stretch where Claxton just was not getting involved offensively. We thought that kind of was corrected by the end of the season where he was back to having, you know, 12 point games, 15 point games, 18 point games. But as you mentioned, we'll see what they do going into game two. Um, looking at the bench unit, what did you think of the guys that played real minutes in this game?
2: Why do we keep going with the Seth Curry, <laughs> Joe Harris? <laughs> Thing. I don't get it, Nick. I don't get it. It's it. I feel like we we've, we've seen too big of a sample size in the regular season to know this particular unit does not work. You need a you need a guard out there that can handle the ball. And yes, I know they kind of staggered it with Mikel out there sometimes and with Spence. Even though like the Spence Joe Harrison Seth Curry minutes, I wasn't really thrilled about. In that, yeah, I'm not thrilled to seeing but, them together, regardless. <laughs> but like, I don't know, like. I know you shorten up the rotation and things like that, but I really do think Edmund Summer would be a much better fit running the offense than Seth and Joe. I don't think you should play them at the same time. I think if you stagger your two best three-point shooters at a time, it'll be better and more beneficial for the Nets. They, like the Sixers know that Joe can't put it on the floor. As we saw with him trying, the one time he did, gets an offensive foul. Seth Curry picks and chooses when his brain wants to work. And there were times in the game where he was playing very well and he got made some shots. And then there was also times where it's like, oh, he's dribbling out the ball, shot clock violation. Oh, look at that. Joe, Seth, Seth Curry just threw it to the guy in the fir- first row with his Budweiser. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm just very at a loss as to why Vaughn keeps sticking with these two at the same time and expecting gold to be made when we all know it's nothing going to be but bronze. Yeah, and also,
1: you know, obviously, Patty Mills not playing. Limiting Patty Mills from this team, these are the two worst defenders in the rotation. You know, Seth Curry and Joe Harris just both can't defend. And if you're going to put them out there, put one at a time and put them surrounded by four other good defenders, you know, to make up for some of their lackluster play on the end of the floor. And also just, you know, Joe not being a good playoff performer. You know, if he's not knocking down his threes offensively, he's not necessarily providing a big impact. So I think his leash needs to be short moving into the next game. Seth Curry is just really a a, a love-hate relationship for me. You know, there's offensive plays where he looks great, knocks down threes and has an impact. And then there's other plays where he makes a mental mistake that you would expect from a rookie or a second-year player. And I think that's the level of frustration. And it's just The bench just wasn't able to give them enough. And the Sixers bench didn't necessarily play amazing, but was able to give them more than what Brooklyn got and was able to, at the very least, not lose those minutes. And it felt like the Nets, on the other hand, were maybe losing those minutes, weren't weren't able to gain anything with Embiid not being on the floor. And another guy who's played really well off the bench, who I thought just had a mediocre to a below average game was Royce O'Neal. Not able to really have much of an impact offensively. And that's where he's really stepped up off the bench over the course of the last month of the season.
2: Yeah, I think Royce is definitely one of those guys. I know I saw your tweet. I think earlier today was like, "Who's who's got to be like the maybe the third or fourth best net or like an X factor." I think Royce O'Neill's definitely got to be one of those guys. Him hitting threes is going to be very important yep. if the Nets have any shot in this series. Um, yeah, he had a really nice layup. You know, six he did have six assists. So yeah, yeah
1: I, I'll give him a little bit more credit than I initially thought. It didn't feel that way watching the game though.
2: It it did not. Um, a lot of times it doesn't. And you're like, oh, wait. And then, I, you know, you always get the sometimes where, like, they give an assist where, like, the offensive guy that he passed to really did most of the work. Um, it's like a contested shot, and you're like, yeah, that's a great assist. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, But, you know, 28 minutes for Royce. I, I expect 0-3 oh, three from three. He had a few good looks. Um, I expect him to go in. But as we all know, role players play much better at home. Um, I'd expect Royce to hit some big threes when the Nets do come back home for games three and four. Um, so I'm not too, too worried about Royce. Uh, but other than that, I mean, I, I think just going back to Joe Harris, too, if you're going to have him out there, he's got to. Sh- and if his main job is to shoot threes, you got to have him shoot more than three. Right. Yeah. He only had three field goal attempts all were from three. He made one of three. But look, like. His job was to shoot threes. He shouldn't just be out there for cardio then. Like, get yep. him into some actions. I remember the Nets used to have this really good play back when it was the big three where they did it at the beginning of every game where somehow it was a Joe Harris wide open three in the corner. I, I want to say it was run out of scissors action, but mm-hmm. I, it's just something about Joe Harris just only having three threes. And yes, I know like, Joe Harris has to beat the playoff choker allegations, but I need him to shoot. I'd rather Joe Harris go one of eight than one of three because at least I know he's getting those shots up there and at the very least it's forcing the Sixers to respect it because you know even though we net fans know Joe Harris be choking sometimes Doc Rivers and the Sixers coaching staff are still going to be having them game plan like hey Joe Harris is a guy that can beat us and you know if Joe's only going to have three field goal attempts it doesn't really help him get into a rhythm at all shooting wise um which doesn't help the Nets at all so it's it's a, it it's funny. It's a combination of some guys need to shoot less and some guys need to shoot more. Yeah, it's
1: if you're going to play someone, they need to play purposeful minutes. And like you alluded to, you know, if you're going to play Joe Harris, generate some looks for him, you know, involve him in the offense, make him a threat, because we know he's not doing anything defensively rebounding wise. He might be an OK rebounder for his position, but at the same time, it's just like. Go with someone else then. you know. Go with a Sumner who's going to bring the juice and the energy and the defense and potentially some rim pressure and somebody who's not necessarily scared to go at Joel Embiid. You know, bring in Watsonabe if he's going to come in and give you more rebounding in size and length. Even bring in Cam Thomas and see if he can catch fire offensively and generating some looks if they're giving so much attention to some of your other players in Mikel Bridges. I think there's plenty of opportunities for adjustments, and I think... Vaughn, I wasn't really happy with his performance this game, but I will say with the rotation, what makes it difficult is the fact is they have so many bench players around the same level of talent. So it's just like more of deciding what skill set you need. And I think it's going to be important for him to adjust going into game two, game three, game four.
2: Yeah, I think that's the most, that's that's the difficult part about it, right? You have Seth and, 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 and Joe basically do the same things. Um, you got Royce there. Yeah, but you have a you have a flamethrower in Cam, and yes, I know there's the whole oh Cam Thomas can't play off ball. This he doesn't work well in an offense that. But at the same time, I'm tired of watching the Nets have these possessions where I'm look at the bottom of the screen and they have that little icon that says Nets zero field goals in four minutes and 19 seconds, and it keeps ticking. You know what I'm saying? Like, yep, I get it. He's not the most polished player, but he's also only 21 years old. If he can even come in just for, like, get a, a cool little turnaround jumper, a floater, a three, just just enough to make Doc Rivers have to call a timeout, I think he's done his job. You know, yeah. but it's, it's it's something that I don't think Vaughn is going to go to at this point. I mean, we've been pleading for it in the regular season, so I doubt he's going to do it, you know, come playoff time. but. How many more offensive lulls can you have when you have Mikel on the bench and you have Spence on the bench and he's not making his shots? And you're just watching Joe and Seth have this weird little throw, just either throw up bricks or just keep turning the ball over until you figure, hey, we need somebody that can spark the offense. Yeah. And I think also
1: another thing that's important is, you know, using those offensive weapons and then finding a way to stagger your defensive weapons. You know, you have Nicholas Claxton, a defensive player of the year candidate. I don't care what the voting says. He was one of the best, not the best defender in the NBA this season, you have Mikel Bridges, you have Dorian Finney-Smith. You know, have those guys on the floor to make sure they can protect some of these bad defenders. And, you know, Cam Thomas is going to come in and he could potentially drop some points. He's not going to be great defensively, but if you're protecting him with other players, you might be able to find a balance. And I feel like today, the most frustrating thing other than playing zone with Dwell and B, not being on the floor, was when we saw a lineup that had four bench players and Spencer Dinwiddie. it's like... This is the playoffs. That doesn't need to be a thing. You know, guys can play more minutes, and you really just have to try to match your skill sets and match what's on the opposing team. And I just feels like the Nets aren't capitalizing on some of their mismatches and allowing Philadelphia to create mismatches when they don't need to, when they they don't have an opportunity to do so. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no I, I absolutely. I,
2: I honestly I couldn't have said it better myself.
1: Honestly. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing for Jacques Vaughn, but uh, Justin, what are you thinking about going into game two? What's what's the biggest change you want to see? If there's one thing that you could change going to game two, what would it be?
2: Just the hustle. More concerted yeah. effort on the boards. Um, you got to get to these 50-50 balls. The Sixers, are not. I mean, I know they only finished the game. It, it'll say 48% from three, but for literally 90% of the game, they shot like upwards of 65% from three. Yep. That's not going to continue for the entire series. And if it does, you know what? Credit to the Sixers, right? But those three-point shots aren't going to fall all series, I think, as long as the Nets just get to the hustle ball – get get, yeah, make the hustle plays – Calm down on the turnovers, especially the unforced ones, right? Um, (laughs) Shot clock violations are something that you can definitely avoid. Just ill-advised passes. I know Mikhail got into trouble a little bit with some of his jump passes just getting caught in the paint. Um, You know, you cut down on those, and those are more possessions that your offense has at getting shots up. Like you said, the Sixers outshot the Nets by, what was it, a a large margin?
1: Yeah, 19 shooting possessions.
2: Yeah, so you see offensive rebounds, extra turnovers. Those are all what lead to extra shots for the opponent. So, yeah, just... I think it's just a mental aspect, the hustle plays and the mental aspect and the natural that they'll, they'll have a more competitive effort in game two. I think so.
1: And this wasn't even a game that Philadelphia lived at the free throw line 16 to 16. Great number for them in terms of efficiency, but you know, going into the series, I thought we'd see some 20, 25, 30 attempt games from yeah. them. And you know, that battle being 16 to 15 is not really that big a deal, but I agree with all your points. I think hustle is a huge factor in just being mentally locked in and engaged. Um, I think also, I would love to see the the defense vary a little bit more in this one. You know, Joel's going to be more comfortable attacking those double teams and traps going to game 2. Now you have to incorporate some more stuff. I thought they did a nice job of attacking from some different angles with some different players, but continue to be weird with that stuff to just throw the Sixers off and make those pass, make them hesitate. If you make them hesitate, it might prevent them from getting the wide open 3. And more so just a slight contest for guys. Some of these guys that aren't great three point shooters, that can be the difference. And, you know, if I had to change one specific thing about a player, I would say Spencer Dinwiddie, I need you to play a good game.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's just it's even just it's funny because I didn't I didn't come away from this game thinking the Sixers are that much more dominant than the Nets. And I don't think anybody that really watched the game should think that because. You know, you look at it, right? Nets led in fast break points. They are almost similar in points in the paint, almost similar in fouls, right? Uh, Nets led in the block category, but where the big differences was the steals. Sixers had fourteen, Nets had three. Total turnovers, Nets had twenty, Sixers had nine. So that's that's pretty much the difference. And second chance
1: points, twenty one to three.
2: Yeah, I mean, in, in total rebounds, and that's only where uh, out rebounded by three. But as as you said, the offensive rebounds is where. Uh, you kind of lost. I mean, the fact that P.J. Tucker has the same amount of offense rebounds as your entire team is, is, is pretty embarrassing. Um, you know, I know that's his job. That's what he's out there for. But you, you got to figure out a way to keep him off the glass. You know, somebody else has to just, just put a body on him. Right. You know, yeah. you talk about the shot goes up, put a, you know, find, find the man, you know, if you're boxing, Fight out, with hey, him in,
1: I would rather see a loose ball foul than see him yes. get a free offensive rebound.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because, hey, if you put P.J. Tucker at the line, I will live with that. I will definitely live with P.J. Tucker going to the line because you're, you know, you're, you're trying to battle him for a board than just giving him the offensive uh, rebound. So, yeah, I mean, that, that shot 55 percent from the field. They shot 44 percent from three, everything, everything you could have asked for for the Nets, you know, in, in ways that you could win. The most part they did is just the the little things. And the little things is how the Nets are going to be able to overcome the Sixers. So
1: the the Nets checked a lot of boxes in this game, but the boxes they didn't check, they got cooked in.
2: Yes. And those end up being the most important boxes.
1: Exactly. And, you know, we kind of mentioned this, but it's also the offensive rebounds that led to the wide open threes. And maybe if you eliminate, they probably made at least five threes off offensive rebounds. You're lowering their three-point percentage. You're lowering their shooting possession. It's now, all of a sudden, this game is a lot closer. But, Justin,
2: anything else before we get out of here? Uh, nope. Nets in seven.
1: <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Uh, hopefully, we see a bounce-bounce performance from the Nets in game two, have a real opportunity to win that one late, bring it back to Brooklyn 1-1. But, Justin, always a pleasure having you on. Big thanks to everybody listening, and check the buzz on all streaming platforms.